today we're going to talk about uh, mold pneumonias in oncology patients. So certainly something you'll see at both Moffitt and Tampa General. Um, I do have a poll everywhere question. So if you have the app or just want to go to the website, um, that's the the handle that's on for it. It's kind of a board style question just to help uh, as we go through it. Uh, I have no disclosures related to the talk. Yeah, it's uh, Guy Hanley 812. Yeah, and it'll be on the question slide too, so you don't have to complete it. Uh, in terms of pneumonia and just really any infections in immunocompromised patients, I, this is kind of how I approach it. I mean, you really want to look at certain patient factors, what puts them at risk for infections, um, what's their disease, what's their uh, part of their immune system that's weak, and what may that increase the risk of getting uh, certain types of infections, whether epidemiologic exposures, what they like to do in their free time, do they garden, do they travel, and then also kind of just what's their net state of immunosuppression, where are they in their chemotherapy cycle, what medications are they getting, is this uh, primary or is it a relapse refractory state of their um, oncologic process? And all of those together really increase your risks of certain types of infections can push you towards a diagnosis. Um, pneumonia, I think you all know, is a very, very broad diagnosis um, differential in patients with hematologic malignancy. Uh, that can be just typical bacterial infections that even patients who don't have cancer may get. Um, but it, it also can include a lot of things like viruses that can reactivate or fungal infections. Um, today, we're really going to only be talking about a very small um, subset of those uh, with the invasive molds. But it is important to remember that the differential is really broad, that you may be looking for these things, as well as non-infectious things, including um, things like DAH or pneumonitis uh, or even spread of their malignancy. And another big thing to do, I think, You've noticed with immunocompromised patients, they may, it's not just the atypical pathogens that you have to look out for, they may have a more severe presentation of a typical organism. And so uh, just something to kind of keep in the back of your head as you're working up these patients. This is a great slide from a paper from the New England Journal in 2007. I think most of you have seen it at this point, but I would encourage you to uh, save this paper. It goes through just the different types of infections at different time points after solid organ transplantation. What are the patients at the highest risk for? Um, of course, always remember if they're having ongoing immunosuppression, rejection that requires treatment, it, it may reset the timeline. And so they may not fit perfectly in these boxes, particularly if they're having ongoing immunosuppression. Uh, this is a similar one that was published in 2013 after allogeneic stem cell transplant uh, really goes through the different risk factors by time period uh, with other things that the patient may have that, that puts you one way or another, like a venous catheter or graft versus host disease, things like that. But for this particular talk, we're going to go through invasive fungal infections and talk about kind of the major causes of invasive fungal pneumonia and hematologic malignancy, talk about the epidemiology, certain radiographic findings or imaging studies that you may see, and then talk about the optimal treatment strategies and just risk factors for mortality in those patients. So starting with a case, uh, this is a 40-year-old patient with relapse refractory acute myeloid leukemia. They're admitted for salvage chemotherapy. Um, She's had uh, prolonged severe neutropenia for several months. Prophylaxis regimen includes acyclovir, ciprofloxacin, and boriconazole. She develops a neutropenic fever that's refractory to IV cefepime, and a CT chest is obtained, which is shown. So at this point, which antimicrobial agent would you recommend starting? I'm going to leave the picture up there. You can see the dense consolidation on the right side. So the choices being mycofungin, liposomal, amphotericin B, meropenem, and isabuconazole. Are we assuming therapeutic levels on the therapy? Uh, 
Vori Consult, yeah, just assume therapeutic levels for the purpose of the question on Vori Consult. But that's a good question. Everybody a second, and we'll go ahead and block it and show the responses. So kind of interesting breakdown. We've got 11% uh, going for mycofungin, 78% uh, for liposomal amphotericin B, and 11% for isabuconazole. So um, kind of going back to the picture, I think there's some really interesting stuff in here that kind of helps point you towards the diagnosis. So you have a patient who's got uh, severe prolonged neutropenia. I didn't fool y'all. Everybody kind of latched on to this is probably a fungal infection. The meropenem, you know, you don't need. So yeah, that's a huge risk factor. And then we have this dense consolidation with actually central clearing, which is a kind of specific finding for a certain type of fungal organism, which we go through. Um, that's something called a reverse halo sign, and it, it can suggest uh, zygomycosis, so, you know, mucor, rhizopus, those kind of species. So then when we start looking at the antibiotic and antimicrobial choices, uh, you know, we already said it's an unlikely a bacterial infection, so that's going to take away meropenem. If we're looking specifically at mucor species, you know, you wouldn't want to use an echinocandin. So that's that's going to take off A um, because they're not going to be reliably active against the organisms. And then you're kind of left with B and D. For board purposes, B is still probably going to be the answer that they're going to ask you. Um, I will say, and we will go through, that there is some data, including a trial for uh, isabuconazole as frontline therapy for mucor. Uh, so D isn't necessarily wrong. There is data to support that. But if you kind of go by expert opinion and, and kind of what's going to still be on boards and most providers are still going to start with liposomal amphotericin B uh, for this patient. So invasive molds, the most common cause of mold pneumonia and hematologic malignancy is still aspergillus. Uh, you'll see in the literature that's referred to is invasive aspergillosis or IA, um, but there's other molds as well. So, you know, Scetosporium, Fusarium, and then zygomycosis, like we already talked about. I do want to stress zygomycosis is this very heterogeneous, broad term. It's a lot of different species. It's a lot of different genuses of organisms. It's really a more um, what it looks like on histopathology, and all these organisms kind of get lumped together. Uh, it's important because your treatment's going to differ, and, and certainly some medications won't work on those organisms, but just remember they are very heterogeneous. It's not like you know, aspergillus, a lot of aspergillus species are much more closely related, than, for example, mucor and rhizopus and Cunninghamella and things like that. One of the biggest risk factors is prolonged neutropenia. Um, and, you know, really prior to the advent of us having any sort of uh, mold active triazole, the case fatality rates were terrible, up to 70% in leukemia patients. Now that's kind of settled down in 30 to 40%. So we've definitely improved, but it's still a pretty high mortality. The proportion of patients with zygomycosis is actually increasing. That's probably a combination of things where our detection methods are probably better, but also, uh, you know, certainly our prophylaxis, particularly voriconazole, you're kind of selecting out for those organs as well. Uh, our cancer treatments have also improved. So a lot of patients who wouldn't have survived to that relapse refractory state now have treatment options they didn't. And so they're going longer with neutropenia and then their, you know, molds kind of come along with that. The most common site is still pulmonary, um, but it can really happen anywhere in the body and it can be disseminated. And a lot of times with disseminated disease, you may see that a cutaneous finding first uh, before you then get imaging and find, you know, the pulmonary involvement. The biggest challenge for molds is we still have very limited diagnostic options. Um, therapeutics are a little bit better, but, you know, 
best case scenario, it's very difficult to grow these organisms. Histopathology is still more sensitive than culture. Um, but even in a histopathology positive specimen, you're only going to grow the organism less than half of the time. So just having it in a, uh, a specimen from a pathologic biopsy or whatever, uh, it may be a challenge to actually grow the organism. And then this is a study that was in 2006 from MD Anderson and uh, patients uh, who'd actually died and had autopsies. There's a lot of invasive molds that go completely undetected until the patients actually died. Um, and those were actually just kind of found on pathologic specimens. So it just kind of really shows you we have a challenge of identifying and even finding molds. These patients are all uh, very high risk with hematologic malignancy. Um, and we, there's certainly a need to improve our diagnostic methods. The figures on the right, the top uh, portion is just kind of talking about the different types of fungal organisms that were isolated in the study over uh, certain time periods. So you can see as time's gone on, the uh, our detection methods have gotten better the tan bars that's kind of the culture negative ones uh you know that's shrinking which is good we better better at actually culturing things out um aspergillus is the orange and the green um and then uh, zygomycosis is the the red so it did increase substantially since uh, the early 90s um, which kind of gone down a little bit up to 2003 this this study obviously there's been 20 years since it's been published so it'd be interesting to look at since then this is another one uh, from 2010, similar things, uh, patients who had autopsies um, after uh, with leukemia who, who died. And you can see that um, the proportion of kind of candida has gone down, but zygomycosis has gone up a little bit from seven to 9%. Uh, the different species as well, there's a difference. You can kind of see by subspecies how things have changed. And a lot of that's due to uh, just kind of prophylaxis patterns. So even for aspergillus, you know, um, our fumigatus has, has kind of gone up a little bit and our culture negatives have gone down. So, The NCCN does put out guidelines for uh, prevention of fungal infections in cancer patients. It really breaks it down very nicely by the type of disease they have, as well as gives you uh, different recommendations for prophylaxis as well as the grade. So um, certainly for myelodysplastic syndrome or acute myeloid leukemia, patients are expected for long, uh, severe neutropenia posaconazole or the other mold active triazoles are considered acceptable options. Uh, posaconazole has the highest recommendation, and that's because there is actually a uh, randomized control trial compared to fluconazole showing a mortality benefit. We extrapolate that to our other mold active triazoles like boriconazole and isabuconazole, um, but technically they have a lower uh, category recommendation because of that. Um, same thing for allogeneic stem cell transplant. If you Notice uh, for uh, prevention, fluconazole or nicotinicandin are both category one, whereas our mold active triazoles are category 2B, and that's because we don't have a similar randomized control trial like we do for AML showing a benefit with posaconazole, unless the patient has graft versus host disease, and then there is a actually randomized control trial that showed a benefit. So that's why it gets the category one um, recommendation if there is GBHD. This is a little bit of an older uh, chart, but I did want to include it because I'd, I'd really like Kind of how it was set up, but it goes through the different antifungal medications. So am amphotericin B deoxycholate, liposomal formulation, fluconazole, itraconazole, voriconazole, posa, caspafungin, mycofungin, and anajulofungin. Um, it really just kind of went through the guidelines. So, you know, one is a first line recommendation, two is a uh, acceptable alternative or salvage therapy, uh, talking about what you know you have IV forms of or oral forms. Um, but you can see for aspergillosis, 
uh, in particular, the most common one, liposomal amphotericin B or boriconazole are considered the first line options. And that's because there was actually a study comparing boriconazole versus deoxycholate amphotericin and boriconazole was um, superior. <clears throat> Since that was published in 2010, there's been a lot of changes. So there's a uh, study that was in the Lancet in 2015 that looked at isavuconazole compared to boriconazole for treatment of invasive aspergillosis. Isavuconazole was found to be non-inferior. A similar study by the same group for posiconazole was done in 2021, same findings. It was not inferior to voriconazole for treatment of invasive aspergillosis. And so at this point, both drugs are, you know, kind of considered non-inferior to voriconazole and acceptable options to use to treat uh, invasive aspergillosis up front. In terms of isavuconazole specifically, and going back to that question that we talked about, um, it is active against zygomy uh, zygomyces. There's a, a study called the VITAL trial um, if you've never looked it up, I encourage you to. It was published in Lancet Infectious Disease. It wasn't a perfectly, you know, placebo-controlled randomized trial, but it, it did show that at least isavuconazole was non-inferior as upfront therapy against zygomycosis. Um, if you kind of get into it, a number of patients still had a breakthrough infection later on, and so a lot of providers will still, you know, start with liposomal amphotericin B and then step down to that, but it is important to kind of know that data. Um, in terms of invasive aspergillosis, there's a trial called the SECURE trial, which I think is a, a big one, too, for fellows to know, that just looked at, uh, for upfront treatment for invasive aspergillosis, isavuconazole versus voriconazole. Uh, and while they were, you know, it was not inferior, there's actually less side effects with isavuconazole. And so that could be an argument to maybe use that upfront if you can. Another big thing, just because of the, the structure of the molecule, um, there has been documented cross-resistance with uh, Aspergillus fumigatus in particular, you know, so if you have an isolate that's resistant to voriconazole, you may want to, you know, preferentially select posiconazole, for example, over isavuconazole because there is that risk of cross-resistance, especially if you don't have resistance testing and no. Um, in terms of zygomycetes, like we talked about, it's very heterogeneous, and so even if you get down to the species level, one might be better than another. You know, those are really our only two mold active triazoles that have activity against uh, mucor. And so, and I apologize, I'm going to probably use mucor and zygomycosis interchangeably throughout the talk, but they are, um, you know, different ways to kind of talk about the same thing. It's really, you know, you're talking about those palsy, septate, large um, mold organisms. Um, this is a study in 2015 that kind of just categorized by species, what was your percent that were susceptible to that organism? So it's very, very helpful if you can get a species ID. You know, we will talk about how the yield of uh, bronchoscopy and other studies isn't always great, but if you can get an organism diagnosis, it's kind of gold because then you can actually go and predict which of these uh, treatments is going to be the best for the patient. Uh, best case scenario, you actually grow it. You know, we talked about even in, if you have histopathology positive, you're only going to grow it less than half the time anyway. But if you do get an organism, it's very, very, very helpful for um, prognosis and as well as making sure the patient's on optimal therapy. So this was uh, for invasive aspergillosis, a study out of Italy in um, uh, 2008, I believe. But it, it looked over three years, um, 21 hematologic divisions with over 140 cases of invasive aspergillosis. Um, you can see, obviously, how prophylaxis patterns have changed. Um, in the last 20 years, but you know, most of the patients were on itraconazole, a few still on fluconazole. Mortality was still pretty high at 27%, um, certainly not the 70% of historical studies, but uh, still substantial mortality from invasive aspergillosis. The most common site was pulmonary, but that was not associated with the highest mortality. 
Um, and the biggest risk was actually during your primary induction. So um, the first cycles of chemotherapy for leukemia. But if you were in a re relapse refractory state, your mortality was actually higher. And that kind of makes sense. You know, they have a higher net state of immunosuppression. Uh, they haven't reconstituted their neutrophils. And so they're, uh, it's going to be harder to actually fight off that kind of infection. What was the highest cycle of mortality? So, yeah, yeah. So on here, uh, they other, I think it was actually CNS, um, was very few. But in general, the mortality is higher with things like sinus compared to lung. Um, you know, this isn't, it's 140 cases, so they weren't able to establish statistical significance on that. Um, lung is still the most common, but, you know, sinuses and certainly CNS, those are probably going to have a higher mortality if it's very disseminated. Uh, but at least this particular study wasn't powered to kind of statistically prove that difference. Um, again, most likely or the highest risk period is that first induction. That's when you're going to be neutropenic the longest before you move into a consolidated phase. It's best case scenario for AML. Um, and then, uh, not surprisingly, reconstitution of your neutrophils was associated with survival benefit. You really need those to help you fight off fungal infections. They did subdivide in terms of what was the upfront drug given. Um, as well as the uh, targeted therapy. They didn't find a statistically significant difference. Again, it's, it's very hard with 140 patients. And, you know, when you start comparing four or five different options to establish uh, a statistical significant difference. Um, and then in terms of the oral, itch, uh, oral antifungal drug that they were given afterwards, same sort of thing. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, there is a study looking at voriconazole versus deoxycholate amphotericin B where voriconazole is superior. Uh, but in terms of the liposomal formulation, both of them have you know, recommendations for upfront therapy. And then we talked about isavuconazole and posiconazole have non-inferior studies compared to voriconazole. So all of them are kind of acceptable options up front for invasive aspergillosis, at least. The biggest challenge for invasive fungal infections is not only do we have a hard time actually isolating these organisms, there's no gold standard. I mean, we don't have anything that's a high sensitivity, high specificity test that you can then compare other tests to to diagnosing the organism. Um, certainly, if you have histopathology or you isolate a mold from a sterile site, you know, that's a diagnosed invasive fungal infection. You don't always get that, though, and then the majority of the time you don't. And so it, it can be a challenge to kind of compare tests to what we use as well as um, kind of give you an accurate sensitivity, specificity, positive and negative predictive value. We try to overcome that with a lot of indirect tests. So some that we look at the fungal cell wall components, things like the 1,3-beta-D-glucan or the galactomannan assay. We use things like imaging findings that may be associated with fungal organisms, something like the halo sign, cavitation, nodules. Uh, it's important to note that some of these are late findings. You know, the halo sign, you're not, you really kind of need neutrophils to help that develop because what you're truly seeing in a halo sign is liquefactive necrosis uh, in the lungs. And so if you don't have neutrophils to kind of start that process, you may not see it. Um, it can be difficult to actually get a sample. A lot of these patients are thrombocytopenic, they're bleeding, there's, you know, they're on oxygen at high levels and it's difficult to do a bronchoscopy. Um, and then that can be a challenge making a diagnosis. And then once you've even obtained a sample, these cultures are very time intensive. It can take, you know, several weeks to grow a fungal organism. By that time, you need to have made a decision for the patient for treatment. And so uh, it can be difficult to kind of apply it clinically um, because of that. And uh, again, colonization is very common too. I mean, we all have molds in our airways and our oropharynx. And so just isolation of a mold on its own is not necessarily diagnostic of anything from the, um, 
oropharynx or even the uh, bronchoscopy uh, samples. Bronchoscopy, the yield's actually pretty low and it does decrease on therapy. You know, ideally you would get it up front immediately, but it, that can be a challenge scheduling and, and getting done. And certainly a lot of times you need to treat the patients before that. But again, if you can grow an organism, it's gold. It's extremely valuable. You can get down to the species level. You can tell the patient, hey, this drug is more likely to work than this drug and make sure they're on the right treatment. So this is a study that I think, or a paper, I'm sorry, that we've uh, probably mentioned before. It's consensus definitions put out by several organizations to kind of help clinicians have a common language to describe uh, fungal infections. It's broken up into proven, probable, and possible disease. Um, for if you have histopathologic evidence of invasion or you isolate from a sterile site, you know, that's that's proven. But absent of that, the best you can do is kind of probable or possible. So the to diagnose that, you want to look at host factors. So what's my patient have that puts them at risk of a fungal infection? Is that neutropenia? Is that high doses of steroids? Is that GBHD? Um, certain medications they may be on, like tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, what are the clinical features? What's on that imaging study that's more suggestive of a fungal infection, like the halo sign nodules, reverse halo? Um, is there evidence of tissue invasion or anything like that? And then mycologic evidence. So certainly if I grow an organism, but it's a non-sterile site like a bronchoscopy or a skin biopsy, or do I have elevated fungal markers uh, like galactomannan or fungitel? Um, we'll talk in a little bit. Fungitel is not really useful for molds. It can be for candida in terms of making a diagnosis and it's just kind of limitations of the test. So specifically for molds from uh, those consensus definitions, uh, host factors, neutropenia is one of the big ones, but any hematologic malignancy is actually considered a host factor. So you don't have to have that neutropenia. And you know, I've certainly seen patients at Moffitt and Tampa General who aren't necessarily neutropenic, but are coming in with invasive uh, fungal infections. Uh, stem cell transplant, solid organ transplant, high doses of steroids, uh, brute and tyrosine kinase inhibitors, um, graft versus host disease. All of those can count as your host factors. You're kind of coming up with risk stratification for fungal infection. In terms of the clinical features, so for aspergillosis, we have some pretty well-defined uh, CT findings that you may see. So uh, those nodular lesions with or without a halo sign, an air crescent sign, um, uh, wedge shape consolidations. Um, they did include the reverse halo sign, especially for uh, mucor. This is from a, a great study I kind of refer to in CID sometimes that shows it's just very highly specific, not necessarily sensitive for mucor, but if you do see it, you just need to really keep mucor high on your differential. And then it also goes through sinonasal disease, central <clears throat> nervous system infections, just other things that can meet your clinical features when you're making the diagnosis of invasive fungal infections. The myco uh, mycology criteria, um, it depends on which site you're on. I, I, the main thing I would draw you to is the galactomannan. Um, it's uh, because of the way the assay works, you know, the FDA cutoff is 0.5, but it's it's maybe a little bit too sensitive at that cutoff um, and not specific enough. And so the guidelines actually, uh, the consensus, I'm sorry, the consensus definitions actually set that threshold higher. So they set it at one before you can actually meet that mycologic criteria. And that's because you can have false pauses if you start setting it too low, especially the FDA cutoff of 0.5. Um, and to overcome, you know, if you increase the specificity, you're going to lower the sensitivity. They did make an exception. Hey, if you have an elevated sterum galactomannan and in the BAL, but it's not over one, those together you can pair and still meet your mycologic criteria. So especially for the galactomannan, I just really want to stress that it's based on where you're going to set your cutoff, how sensitive or specific. If you increase it, you may be increasing your specificity, but you might be decreasing your sensitivity. And so 
just realize the limitations of that test. Um, the beta D-glucan, it's very nonspecific for molds in particular, and so it wasn't included in the definitions. Um, there's a lot of things that can uh, cause false positives that we'll talk about a little bit later with that one. Um, but it's if you've never looked at it, it's great. I mean, they'll go through other things too, Candida, Cryptococcus, uh, Pneumocystis, um, some of the endemic mycosis like histoplasmosis, and it just kind of gives you um, definitions and other things to look out for for those patients. So this is, uh, in terms of what's the yield of our diagnostic procedures, a study that was published um, in mycoses that looked at 100 patients that had CT abnormalities and intrapenic fever at Stanford. Um, of those, about half ended up having a diagnostic procedure of some kind, whether that was bronchoscopy or biopsy. And just breaking it down by procedure, uh, culture yield, so a bronchoscopy only had 12.8%. The yield increased with obtaining tissue, which is not surprising. You know, if you had an, a lung biopsy, that got you up to 35%. Sinus biopsy actually had the best yield at 83.3%. And so if you have that patient with a disseminated infection that has maybe a cutaneous finding, sinonasal involvement, um, and pulmonary involvement, you know, certainly you're going to evaluate the safety factors of going after one modality or another. But in terms of just your culture yield, obtaining tissue with a skin biopsy, for example, or a sinus biopsy may increase your yield of actually getting a diagnosis rather than going for bronchoscopy. Unsurprisingly, hematologic malignancy is what most of these patients, the 100 had. So I think 88 of the 100 uh, had either AML or ALL. Um, and then the other uh, hematologic malignancies that were reported were aplastic anemia and CLL. They didn't do it, you know, analysis, but certainly myeloid le uh, leukemia and um, to some degree acute lymphoid leukemia are increased risk of invasive fungal infections compared to other ones like aplastic anemia and myelodysplastic syndrome, I guess. Um, if they're only on like hypermethylating agents, for example. This reports the CT findings that the patients had. So the main thing I, I just kind of wanted to point out, nodules were kind of the most common thing, 79%. Uh, but in terms of the ones that actually had a halo sign, it was only 24%. So you really, you know, you probably need those neutrophils to actually develop that. Uh, cavitation, same sort of thing, only 8.9% actually had uh, cavitation. So you're not always gonna get those classic halo signs with cavitation and, and things like that, um, which you're, most of the time you're just going to see is just kind of several dense, well-circumscribed nodules. This is uh, kind of the primary thing I just want to uh, point out too. The number of patients who had some sort of staining that was demonstrated a fungal organism was five. Um, of those, only three actually grew the organism though. So, you know, you, you do get a little bit of extra benefit if you have uh, histopathology or some sort of, you know, cytology that may show a fungal organism. And so it's not all just on the culture, but, you know, it's culture's not as sensitive as some of the other modalities. Uh, this is a similar study looking at 23 patients in a 10-year period. It was published in 1999 um, out of Switzerland. Uh, their yield was a little bit better, but it's obviously less patients. It's only 23. Um, they had a yield of about 30%. And you know, I, I, certainly when I'm counseling patients, you know, I tell them it's very valuable if we can actually grow an organism. But to be honest with them, you know, most of the time I'm not going to grow an organism from your bronchoscopy. There are other valuable things I can still get. We talked about histopathology, maybe cytology, um, but the aspergillus uh, galactomannan assay, which is a component of the cell wall, can increase your sensitivity too, and that can actually be done on the bronchoscopy. And we talked about how that uh, folds into the definitions as well. 
this test can be positive with other molds that aren't necessarily aspergillus. So things like penicillium, um, histoplasmosis, blastomycosis. It does cross-react in Fusarium species, although it's not technically the same thing that's being detected. And then possibly with there's case reports in case series where it probably cross-reacts with Scutosporium as well. Uh, an important thing is it's absent in uh, mucor. And so uh, if you, it, it can be helpful, but because the assay itself isn't great, there's false positives, it depends on where you set your cutoff. You can't use a low positive to rule out mucor, but just to kind of know if it comes back extraordinarily positive, you know, five, six, something like that, you're probably dealing with an aspergillus species. You're less likely to be dealing with a uh, zygomycete. And that may be something, you know, if you get in a decision, hey, am I going to use voriconazole or isabuconazole, posiconazole, I'm much more comfortable using voriconazole if I have a very high aspergillus galactomannan assay, because I think the chances of, uh, you know, zygomycetes have been a lot lower. Uh, the FDA approved cutoff is over 0.5. A lot of things can cause false positives, certain fluids. Uh, I don't know if it's still really on board exams, but synthetic beta-lactams like Piperacil and Tazobactam, the newer formulations of those really, you don't have false positives anymore. Um, if the patient's already on antifungal therapy, uh, in terms of prophylaxis, if there's a low burden of disease, you may get a false negative. So it's it's a challenging to interpret assay, but it's an important one in the armamentarium, and we'll talk about why to kind of increase your yield of diagnosing um, fungal infections. So uh, this was a study of 251 patients from Belgium. They use the same definitions that I showed you kind of before for, uh, you know, is this patient at risk to have hematologic malignancy, GBHD, that kind of thing, uh, solid organ transplant. Hematologic malignancy was only a subset, you know, only about one out of five patients in this study. Um, they did have 56 cases of IFI, 42 of those were uh, fumigatus, and their yield was actually 16.7%. So somewhere in the middle of that um, 10 and 30 that I showed you before. Um, so the yield isn't great, but when they started looking at the aspergillus uh, galactomannan assay to increase the yield, um, they looked basically at each of the different cutoffs. And you can see in the first column, the sensitivity at a cutoff of 0.5, which is the FDA approved one, great, 93% sensitivity. The specificity, and eh, not as good, 86.8%. So from that, you get a positive predictive value of 75%, not great. And then a negative predictive value of 96.6. Great. So, um, but the higher you go, sensitivity starts to suffer, especially if you get down to four, you know, it's it's less than 50%. But the specificity is fantastic. It's, you know, 100% at that point. So it's just something to kind of be aware of. It's it really just going to inform your antifungal choice more than anything, as well as kind of making a diagnosis of are those nodules um, a fungal infection. This is another study looking at the galactoman that was actually done at Shands. Um, you know, from patients from 2004 to 2006, looking at the performance of the test, they use the same definitions. And for proven or probable invasive fungal infection, so, you know, we have host criteria, clinical criteria, um, plus or minus the mycologic criteria, of which one of is the galactomannan. Um, and you can see as you increase your cutoff that your sensitivity is going to start suffering, but your specificity is going to perform better. So the Benefit of this is the galactomannan assay for invasive pulmonary aspergillosis actually perform better uh, in terms of a sensitivity, so not missing cases, than things like cytology, culture, bi biopsy, um, you know, the, and the, even the serum galactomannan. So um, it depends on your cutoff, but it is a valuable test to have, and it's um, 
know, useful, certainly when you're working up patients and I tell them, you know, the bronchoscopy might not pick up everything, but I still get invaluable, important information. And this is part of it. Yeah, Dr. Spock. Like if you go back to the table and you yep. said how as we increase the uh, VAL galactamine and the specificity increase and sensitivity decreases, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm guessing we can assume the same for serum. Have there been studies done around that or? Yes, um, I don't have any of them in this talk, but yeah, there have been some that looked at serum. Um, in, it kind of depends on which one you look, because the problem with this is they're all low numbers and it's hard to make a statistical analysis. This one in particular found that the sensitivity of the uh, Bronco bronchoscopic galactomannan was better than a serum galactomannan. So, you know, in this particular paper, 10 of the 15 patients had a positive serum galactomannan, 67%. But if you're using the galactomannan in the bronch cutoff of 0.5, you know, you can still beat that 73%. So everything with galactomannan depends on your cutoff, but um, yeah, there, there's other studies that look at it for the serum too, and it's the same sort of thing. It's just where you're setting your cutoff. The... Next thing to kind of consider is, okay, I've made my diagnosis of invasive fungal infection. Uh, in terms of treatment, how urgent is it for me to both make that diagnosis and then start this patient on treatment? You know, things like sepsis, we have plenty of studies, you know, every hour that you delay antibiotics may increase mortality up into a point. Um, for fungal infections, is there the same sort of thing? There's not much data. So this is a study from 1995, um, looking at 33 immunocompromised patients with pulmonary aspergillosis. <clears throat> The histopathology proven uh, cases were 15 of those, or about half. Um, and then they were able to actually grow an organism, a fungal organism. There's a lot of bacteria, which we'll show in the next slide. In 16 of them, uh, they had to have that criteria as well as CT findings. So this is before we have the consensus definitions, but you can kind of see they're using similar things. Um, and they really kind of looked at their clinical outcomes. So the overall mortality was 48%, higher than a lot of our more contemporary studies. Uh, closer to that 70% the farther you kind of go back. And then if they disseminated, um, I'm sorry, on autopsy, that was actually higher. There's a lot of disseminated cases that they missed, which we talked about before. A lot of these aren't diagnosed until, or diagnosed anti-mortem. Uh, and then they kind of looked at, okay, when was antifungal therapy started and did that affect the mortality of the patients? Most of the patients had acute myeloid leukemia. Um, and then you can see too, it gets hard to interpret this because there was a lot of co-infections, a lot of other organisms isolated, and so it's not necessarily a pure invasive aspergillosis, but the cutoff that they evaluated, the mortality was improved if you started antifungal therapy within 10 days. So 41% versus, you know, 90% mortality. Um, obviously a lot of limitations, but just something to kind of know that, yeah, there probably is a time-dependent thing where, you know, if you made a diagnosis, you want to start therapy. This is a more contemporary study that was published uh, in the International Journal of Infectious Diseases that looked uh, at patients in Japan from 2014 to 2018 with invasive pulmonary aspergillosis using the consensus definitions. Um, they excluded patients basically that didn't have those host and clinical criteria. They uh, set their cutoff at seven days. So if you were earlier or before that treatment started, you're considered an early diagnosis. If it was after that, you're considered a late diagnosis. Um, the majority of the patients were started within seven days, 62%. And then they looked at the overall mortality. If you got started early, your overall mortality was 30%. If you got started late, it was 42%. Um, and it, it, this slide's a little bit confusing. So model one is basically looking at just voriconazole. Model two includes uh, voriconazole 
or if the patient got liposomal amphotericin B. So in their first model, there was a statistically significant mortality benefit if you started voriconazole within seven days of diagnosis. If you then included the patients who got liposomal amphotericin B, maybe instead of voriconazole or in combination, that mortality benefit was no longer statistically significant, but you can see the p-value is 0 0.056. It's still trending towards that way. So certainly, you know, there is a benefit of early treatment. It's probably not, you know, down to the hour like it is for bacterial infections uh, with sepsis, but, you know, you don't want to delay diagnosis. You don't want to delay treatment. And certainly that's why, you know, if your bronchoscopy is not going to be done until next week, there's a time-dependent thing. You kind of have to start therapy once you've made a diagnosis or you feel like the patient has invasive um, pulmonary aspergillosis or invasive fungal infection uh, because you just don't have that time to kind of sit and wait and wait and wait to make your uh, diagnosis. And it's going to be the most common cause of um, infection for a lot of patients like that. For zygomycosis, so kind of shifting gears, um, the one of the big challenges of the true instance is unknown. It's a lot of times even harder to grow than aspergillus. Um, we do know this is a study from 2005, just kind of showing different sites of infection with zygomycosis. Um, in hematologic malignancy overall, pulmonary is the most common at 60%, but uh, like we said, you have cutaneous, sinus, CNS involvement. In bone marrow transplant, a little bit more sinus um, compared to hematologic malignancy, but pulmonary is still the most common site. This is over time by decade. You can see that the uh, our culture methods have gotten better. Our workup methods have gotten better. We're able to diagnose more cases of zygomycosis, but also our prophylaxis has changed. Uh, you know, voriconazole could potentially select out for these organisms. And then our patients are living longer just from their hematologic malignancy treatments. And so they're going to be neutropenic for longer, or more at risk of picking up infections. So we're making more diagnoses of zygomycosis because of that. Uh, this was a study in CID of kind of just all comers with mucormycosis. So certainly you're uncontrolled diabetics, solid organ transplant, things like that. Malignancy was only a small proportion at 70%. But the mortality, if you had malignancy and zygomycosis, was very high, 66%. So, um, you know, much higher than that 30 40% with aspergillosis. Uh, and, and certainly the need for treatment and making sure we're on the appropriate treatment kind of urgency goes up, especially when the mortality increases too. So because of that, looking into time to therapy with amphotericin B, um, this was a study out of MD Anderson that looked at patients from 1989 to 2006. There were 70 total. Uh, they used those consensus definitions, so 45 with definite fungal infections, 25 probable. Uh, 32 of those were stem cell transplant. They set the day of diagnosis at the basically the time you had all of that clinical criteria that you could have made the diagnosis. So you have your imaging for your clinical criteria. Uh, they had some sort of compatible syndrome, whether that's neutropenic fever or you know something that would make you work it up. Um, they did not require microbiologic diagnosis, and that's in part because, you know, it might take time to get a bronchoscopy. In the majority of cases, you're not even going to have a microbiologic diagnosis. You may get histopath in the best case scenario. And then they went and looked at the risk factors that were associated with poor outcomes. So if I'm treating these patients, you know, what medications do I use? What time or how soon do I start treatment? What, what's associated with a poor outcome in mucor? The mortality rate is still quite high at four weeks. Uh, it was a 47% mortality. At 12 weeks, it was 66%. So the majority of patients had um, unfortunately died. Um, and that's in part because patients who are at risk of getting mucor already have a very high risk of uh, mortality. And then the disease itself is a high risk of mortality. 
So um, the bottom left panel is a classification and regression tree. They use that to kind of determine what's the break point um, at which mortality is potentially increased from delaying diagnosis. And then they use that for the bottom right panel to, um, I'm sorry, not the bottom right panel. Uh, yeah, sorry, for the bottom right panel to determine their outcome. So early treatment was defined as before six days, delayed treatment was six days or later, starting on amphotericin. And you can see the mortality differences uh, at four weeks if, for the early treatment group was 35%, 66% in the delayed treatment group. That was statistically significant with a p-value of 0 0.006. And then the more longer follow-up at three months, same similar finding, 48.6% versus 82.9%. Very big difference from starting liposomal amphotericin B. So, um, you know, it's important if you are suspicious of mucor, once you have the information to make your diagnosis to go ahead and start the therapy, don't wait for your bronchoscopy, especially if it's going to be delayed. You know, if it's going to be done that day, it may be fine to wait till afterwards. But if it's going to be, you know, next week or for whatever reason, you just go ahead, go ahead and start treatment um, because you can make a big difference in the outcome for these patients. Other things that they found that were associated with um, an improved outcome, and, and certainly y'all probably heard me talk about this when we're seeing the patients. So having seven days of amphotericin B-based treatment was in univariate analysis associated with improved outcomes. That was not shown in multivariate. So you could argue is that necessarily as important? And, and certainly once you start to incorporate the vital study, maybe using isabuconazole, that's a fair argument. But I do try to buy as much liposomal um, amphotericin B treatment as possible when I'm looking at the patients. Uh, combination therapy with caspofungin did not have a statistically significant benefit in univariate analysis. Um, using postconazole as your salvage therapy did have a uh, substantial uh, benefit in multivariate analysis. Now, this is kind of pre-isabuconazole days. It's 2008, you can see. So it's you know not necessarily to say postconazole superior to isabuconazole. You can't draw that because isabuconazole wasn't even really routinely in practice at this point. But um, it is something where, you know, I try to get these patients on one of the two drugs is salvage uh, therapy afterwards. Use of growth factor was not associated with improved outcomes um, in univariate analysis. And then, uh, you know, not surprisingly, neutrophil recovery is a benefit both in univariate and multivariate analysis. So just comparing the two, zygomycosis versus aspergillosis, outcomes are worse with zygomycosis. Um, diagnosis is sometimes harder. Um, the optimal therapy is more of a challenge. You know, I just showed you all the data for invasive aspergillosis. I've got multiple options, whether that's liposomal amphotericin, coriconazole, isabuconazole, posaconazole, all with non-inferiority studies versus zygomycosis. Not only can I not use voriconazole, but at the species level, because it's better genetic, <coughs> posaconazole may be better than isabuconazole. And so it's a, it's a little bit more of a challenge to kind of treat those patients. Our diagnostics are still terrible. Our yield from procedures is poor. Um, a lot of these patients have other factors that can make it a challenge. And then even when you are able to do the procedure, only in a minority of cases, you're going to actually be able to grow the organism. So um, because of that, you know, there is a clearly a benefit, if I can tell, is this aspergillus versus mucor, because that's going to affect my treatment options as well as just prognosis for the patient. So this is going back to those definitions for aspergillosis. There are some classic CT findings, you know, your air crescent sign, your cavitary lesion halo sign, um, and then pointed out again for the reverse halo sign, that may be more specific to the mucor zygomycosis. So um, not to call anyone, anyone who knows it, just kind of uh, say it out loud. So the top left picture, what radiology sign is that? 
Halo. Halo. Halo sign, yeah. So halo sign is essentially your dense, well-circumscribed nodular lesion with 75% of it has ground glass around it. Um, then what about, I'm not sure which one's next. Uh, let's say, what's the one on the top right? Air yeah, air crescent sign. Um, so that one, you know, we talked about you have to have neutrophils because it's liquefactive necrosis. Um, I know I've mentioned it before, the uh, air crescent sign is not a fungal ball. A dependent fungal ball within a cavity is actually called the monad sign. Um, and it's it's a different process. I mean, it's, it's you know, an air crescent, a lot of that's from actually the immune reconstitution and as your immune system's attacking the organism, not necessarily just a dependent fungal ball within a cavity. And then the bottom left one we talked about already is kind of your reverse halo sign. You have those dense consolidations with central clearing. Okay, so this is a study from 2010 that looked at different imaging patterns based on different patients with invasive pulmonary aspergillosis. So they looked at solid organ transplant, which is the left column versus neutropenic patients. An airway invasive pattern was more common in solid organ transplant, 65% compared to 7%, whereas an angioinvasive pattern was more common in your neutropenic group at 93% um, compared to 35%. I apologize, I don't have actually pictures in my um, PowerPoint of those two patterns. The halo sign, though, which we talked about, is more common in the neutropenic group, so 56% versus 8%. But even when I'm looking at a patient modules, 56% is not that sensitive. I mean, it's not going to be a rule-in, rule-out test by any stretch of the imagination. It just kind of can help point you towards the diagnosis and just as part of the overall puzzle and picture. Uh, this is another study from 2018 looking at mucor specifically, certain radiologic findings, low number of patients at 30. But the big thing about it is they were pathologically proven in 27 of those. So, you know, this is a very good, you know, specific to mucor kind of study. Um, the overall mortality of those patients was still high, 53%. Um, and the median time frame was pretty early, uh, only 27 days from their initial CT. Uh, not surprisingly, most of them had hematologic malignancy. And what here I really want to point out to you, you know, I and we'll talk about it a little bit later, um, another study from MD Anderson looking at what's more specific to mucor. The number of lesions is not tremendously helpful. Um, you know, sometimes the patients with mucor had only one lesion, but sometimes they had over 10. Um, the median size of the lesion ranged from 2.1 to 11.9 centimeters. Not extraordinarily helpful, but just kind of something to know. And then reverse halo sign, again, not very sensitive. It's only seen in 60%, but we talked about earlier, it may be more specific, so that can kind of help selecting antimicrobial agents. Uh, they did a follow-up CT, which was uh, pretty nice a week later. And so you can see that a lot of these patients, maybe they don't have the reverse halo sign at first, but they go on to develop it. The yield went from 60% to 67%. Same thing with cavitation. Over time, those, those lesions will start to cavitate out. And then they may develop additional nodules over time too. So, you know, initially it was only 7% with multifocal pneumonia, and then it went up to 17% on that one with follow-up. Uh, this is a study from Moffitt, actually. Uh, you'll probably see a lot of familiar names on there, looking at uh, patients with microbiologically cultured aspergillosis, uh, fusarium, or zygomycosis. Um, and they just kind of compared the imaging findings. It, again, it's it's very challenging to get enough patients to perform a full statistical analysis. So this just kind of is a descriptive study for what they found with those patients. Um, it was over a 10-year period. 
And, um, you know, columns going over aspergillus, 27 patients, fusarium, 25, uh, zygomycosis, 22. You can kind of see that um, nodules tended to be larger with aspergillus and mucor uh, versus fusarium. You know, 80% had subcentimeter nodules and 80% also had multiple nodules, whereas that was a minority of patients with aspergillus and zygomycosis. Uh, the reverse halo sign, not surprisingly, 22% zygomycosis. It was pretty rare in the other two types of organisms. Um, so, you know, none of these are approaching a, a percentage that would be helpful for you to rule in or rule out anything, but it is kind of neat to just have in the back of your mind certain fungal organisms have certain patterns, and you can kind of see at the bottom the left-hand sign is aspergillus. You have some nice halo signs but I don't have anything that's a reverse halo. It's a few nodules, it's not a ton. They're larger nodules versus the one on the right is a fusarium patient, which I think you've probably seen as well. You have all these very small multifocal nodules in all lobes of the lung, and that's a pretty classic presentation with fusarium. So uh, in terms of one, um, you know, looking for zygomycosis versus invasive pulmonary aspergillosis, with imaging findings. This is a study out of MD Anderson. They had 16 patients with zygomycosis, 29 with aspergillosis. So again, small numbers, uh, but they did do a statistical analysis on several different factors to say what's going to point me one way or another. Um, biggest things here, you know, again, I told you they went to a ton of different things for univariate and multivariate analysis. The things in multivariate analysis that stuck out that were more specific to mucor were sinus involvement, Boricon is all prophylaxis, which isn't surprising. It's not going to be active against the organism reliably. Over 10 nodules was uh, more associated with zygomycetes than aspergillus. And then a pleural effusion was also more associated with zygomycosis. So how do you use this? I would stress that this is things that are more specific to mucor. Uh, certainly something I've come to a greater appreciation in practice and being at Moffitt um, is that mucor of times can present with just your large consolidated solitary lesion but these findings if i have any of them i'm going to probably avoid boriconazole i'm going to prefer to use posiconazole sabuconazole i'm probably going to you know try to get more amphotericin b days and a more prolonged treatment for those particular patients because i'm more worried that mucor is you know moving up my differential if i have any of these findings so in summary um you know Fungal infections, they're very difficult to diagnose, um, in part because colonization is common. I don't have a gold standard I can give you. At best, a lot of these tests have a low uh, sensitivity. The, our consensus, I mean, our, anytime you see a, an infectious process that the diagnosis is based on consensus definitions, that should already show you it's hard to actually diagnose. Um, we have those host factors, clinical factors, mycologic criteria. Um, we talked about the, the caveats with the galactamanin assay. Yes, it may increase sensitivity compared to culture, uh, but you, it really depends on what are you using as your cutoff uh, to balance your false positive and false negative rate. And then we did talk about uh, how early diagnosis and treatment may improve outcomes for patients. Um, that varies based on which organism, even down to the species level, especially with mucor. And so having that information, while it's not going to happen in the majority of cases, is gold if you do have it. And we talked about things that are specific to zygomycosis compared to aspergillosis, not necessarily sensitive, is if you have boriconazole breakthrough, over 10 nodules, pleural fusion, sinus involvement. Um, other things that are associated with good, you know, better outcomes in zygomycosis because the mortality is so high is 
um, you know, using amphotericin. I, you know, like I said, in that paper, it was seven days in univariate. It disappeared in multivariate, even though it's still kind of, you know, it's probably important. If you do look at some expert opinions, they'll say even treat two to three weeks for zygomycosis before you step down to your triazole therapy. Um, remembering that voriconazole is not active reliably against the organism, so you're going to want to use one of the other mold-active triazoles. And then, uh, yeah, I really want to stress for all of us, because we do get a lot of pushback as infectious disease, do you really need this bronchoscopy? Even though the majority aren't going to get a microbiologic diagnosis, it's gold if you have it, and there's other things you get from it, like the galactomannan. Um, or a lot of times you'll see, and I'm sure y'all have had patients that it looks like fungal pneumonia. It's a profound prolonged neutropenia patient. You send them to bronchoscopy and then it comes back with pseudomonas or it comes back with nocardia or it comes back with something completely different. And obviously that's a completely different treatment. You're avoiding all of the potential side effects with these drugs and it's not trivial. I mean, certainly amphotericin B, significant renal toxicity, um, electrolyte problems, and then a lot of our triazoles, particularly voriconazole, um, have side effects. And so having an accurate diagnosis is valuable. Future directions. So rapid diagnostics are kind of the new uh, thing that are coming on. Uh, there's something called the Modi-Mucor trial. If you want to look up in CID, they looked at uh, basically broad PCR sequencing. It actually was able to pick up a lot of mucor infections prior to you know, our conventional testing. The Carius test, uh, which is a next generation uh, cell-free microbial DNA test, um, you know, it's we're, we're still having a hard time showing how this is going to be used in clinical practice and it still needs to be clinically validated but there is a study from uh josh hill at fred hutch in 2019 that did show you know was able to pick up some cases maybe before some of our conventional testing so i think it's it's potentially going to have a role especially for these very hard to diagnose things like fungal pneumonia um but being able to kind of say what's a normal baseline of genetic material of these fungal organisms in the blood is very hard because a lot of those patients even in dr hill's study didn't actually go on to develop fungal pneumonia, but maybe they had detectable um, DNA. Uh, next generation sequencing, so looking at ribosomal RNA uh, from tissue samples and pathology blocks can increase your yield. You may get an organism, and then you, you then take that organism species diagnosis and go find, hey, what's the best treatment? Is it posaconazole, isabuconazole, et cetera? And then we have a lot of new antifungal therapeutics in the pipeline, which are pretty cool and will kind of revolutionize, I think, treatment of fungal infections in the future. So. This is a great study in 2021. I like just mainly because of the pictures uh, that goes through a lot of the studies for those agents and the agents that are coming down the pipeline. So phosphaminogenics is a first in class uh, GWT1 inhibitor. The great thing about all this is all these first in class drugs, like we don't get that for antibiotics at all. I mean, with antifungals, I mean, here's three first in class drugs that are either on the market already and FDA approved and for ibrexafungar or, you know, in phase two, phase three studies for um, alorafim at least. Um, so phosphaminogenic is a GWT1 inhibitor uh, that's used by fungal organisms for trafficking and anchoring, actually. Uh, it is the second circle you can kind of see there where it acts on some of the manoproteins. Um, Ibrexafungurp is already approved for vulvovaginal candidiasis. It's a first-in-class oral glucan synthase inhibitor. Um, and that's the top circle you can kind of see up there. Uh, it's So it acts on 1,3-beta-D glucan synthase but it's a different site than echinocandins. Uh, and so you may have activity with this drug, but it still may be resistant to echinocandins. You kind of just have to test to know. And then alorafem is a first-in-class dihydroorotate dehydrogenase inhibitor, which is involved in peribidine synthesis. And that's the bottom circle you can see uh, there. 
and it's it's in phase three trials right now. What was the uh, other one? Which one? The third circle down. Uh, opalconazole is a longer acting uh, triazole. Yeah. So not a novel class, so I didn't talk about it, <laughs> um, but it is uh, kind of a cool drug because it does maintain activity with some of the other agents and not have activity. So uh, same thing with razafungin, you know, it's an aconicandin, just different uh, activity. So uh, one thing I love about this uh, chart is the um, color scheme that they chose to use. Green is good, yellow is maybe, red is bad. Um, and then they just break it down by each of the different drugs and the different pathogens. Uh, the top one being your aspergillus species, uh, your or zygomycetes uh, in the second grouping, fusarium, uh, some of our harder to treat molds like fusarium and scutosporium, and then um, our hyaline molds and things like that. Um, but you can see it, it kind of varies pretty broadly. I mean, you know, uh, phosphaminogepics may have some activity against mucor, whereas ibrexafunga or fenolorfim don't, but you just don't know unless you test. Uh, opalconazole does have some activity against rhizopus species at least, but hasn't been studied for some of other um, mucor organisms. And so um, just something to kind of know and kind of stress that if you can get a genus or better case, even a species level diagnosis, it can be really, really helpful to make sure you're on the best treatment for your patients. And then uh, a little bit of optimism too, because, you know, like we said, the mortality for this in terms of aspergillosis is still 30 to 40% in hematologic malignancy for mucor, 40 to 60% or even higher, depending on what else goes on. There's a lot of promising things that are in the pipeline that may give you an option to treat some of these patients that we didn't have before. Is that opal, what, is that available? Um, not widely. I think you'd still probably have to reach out to a trial or a company to get access to it right now. Yeah, but hopefully it will be. Because <laughs> you can see it kind of like some, for example, Aspergillus terius, right? Amphotericin B resistant, um, you may have a treatment option. But um, the bad thing about opalconazole is it's not necessarily like, a, if you already have resistance, like conazole, isabiconazole, voriconazole, you're not necessarily going to be broadening your activity. It's still resistant a lot of times. So I didn't highlight it because it's not necessarily novel, but it is a, a treatment option that may be available for some patients that still come down the pipeline. So. I think uh, with that, I just kind of have references, so happy to answer any questions.